Thank you, guys. That was awesome. Got my little stool here for my coffee. I'm ready to go. All right. I want to welcome you guys. My name is Tony. It's good to be here with you this morning. If we haven't met, I hope we get to meet one of these days. Please send an email or reach out. I'd love to kind of get to know you a little better. So we're traveling through 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's, uh, our series is called Messy Church, Merciful God. This is the thing, though. 1 Corinthians, the, the church in Corinth is messy. That's just sort of unavoidable. And with messiness comes uncomfortable conversations. So we've been going through the last few chapters. Paul has gotten a bunch of gossip from Chloe's people in Corinth. They've given her the lowdown, or him the lowdown on what's going on. Now in chapter 7, we sort of, we make a pivot. And this pivot is uh, towards conversations that the Corinthians, or questions the Corinthians have themselves, right? So they sent a little delegation to Ephesus, to Paul, and said, hey, we have some questions. Chapter 7 is where we actually begin to address these questions that the Corinthians themselves had. And the first question that Paul addresses is about marriage, And the next one he's going to address is about singleness. So I just want to say, right, if you are single today, I just invite you, please don't check out. Uh, And if next week, if we're, you know, we're going to talk about singleness, if you're married, please don't skip. Remember, Paul wrote this letter and it was read for the whole church. It wasn't a marriage seminar. It wasn't a single retreat. It was for everyone. We are one body. So Paul writes in the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians 7 about marriage. Now, usually what we do is we dive right into the text and we kind of work our way through. But if you've read 1 Corinthians 7, you know that Paul's, the questions Paul's, are, Paul's addressing are fairly particular to Corinth. So I thought it might be better today to do sort of a broader coverage of what is, what is God's idea of marriage, particularly in Genesis, and then how that shapes and informs what Paul is going to be saying in 1 Corinthians. I do want to say, though, uh, that as we begin, I, I just want to be clear at the outset, because you might be thinking, oh, is Tony going to say something about, uh, you know, the church and gay marriage or the church's relationship to the LGBT community or communities? Like, what is he going to say here? I just want to say this. In my experience, it's best not to have conversations that are super loaded and complex and very heated in a monologue, right? So ideally, you're not having that conversation with someone standing on a stage telling you this is exactly what it says. That's better happens in conversation. So one of the things we do at Wellspring is we have a class. We've offered it once. We're going to offer it again in September that's around sexuality and the church, right? And this is a multi-week conversation where we're really wrestling with what does the Scripture have to say about sexuality, specifically as it relates to uh, gay or lesbian, transgender, or queer relationships. So if you're really passionate about that or you have questions about it, please check out that class in September. Because the truth is, this morning I am not going to be able to give a thorough explanation of what the Scriptures have to say specifically about that topic, because it is, it's long, complex, and honestly, it's better done in conversation. So please check that out. This morning, what I want to try and do is really take a look at what is God's dream for marriage? Because I think the thing is, as Americans, we come to marriage and the Scriptures with all kinds of assumptions. I remember when I was in high school, I had a conversation with my dad about why he ended up getting divorced. I remember we were standing in my bedroom, 
And he was off to the right, uh, and I remember asking him, you know, why did you get divorced? And he said, you know, I, I wasn't happy. I remember at the moment, it took me a bit to like, okay, what does that, wait, what does that have to do with, you know, marriage or getting divorced? But as I've thought about it over the last 20 years, and specifically this last week, I've realized, actually, I think my dad's comment is profoundly revealing just about sort of our general take on marriage in the United States. That was an interesting noise. I don't think that was me. As Americans, I think most of us, right, we're raised to believe that marriage is about happiness. That's sort of, we, we watch Disney movies, we look at fairy tales, and almost always, right, they end with these lines, and they lived happily ever after. But the thing is, when you actually go to the Scriptures, when you actually go to the Hebrew Bible, you don't find that line anywhere. I promise you, happily ever after connected to marriage never happens once. Now, marriage also is connected to all kinds of other issues. It's connected to whom we can marry. Is marriage an institution created by people? Is gender really just, you know, a social construct or is it something else? Now, what I'd like to do this morning is lean into, all right, so what does God have to say about marriage in the Scripture, specifically in the beginning? All right, so in the beginning, I often hear people say, you know, all I need is God. And I think to myself, yeah, all I need is God. You know, and I even say it to myself, and then I go and look into the Bible, and I realize, actually, God doesn't even agree with that statement. God makes Adam. They're alone. All Adam has is God. And this is what God says. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Right, if you go to Genesis 1, days 1 through 6 through 7, everything is good. The first bad thing in all of creation is Adam being alone. And as an aside, this isn't to say that everyone should get married. Jesus isn't married. Paul isn't married. What God is saying at this point is that everyone needs community. Everyone needs relational connection. So in response, what does God do? He takes Adam and he sort of puts him into this sleep and he removes his cella, which is often translated as rib in verse 21. But the word cella, actually, it's used over 40 times in the Old Testament and it actually never is translated rib. In every other passage, cella refers to the side of a sacred piece of architecture. So what God is saying is He's taking a sacred piece of architecture out of Adam, and out of that sacred piece of architecture, He's forming another sacred piece of architecture in Eve. Right, and then Adam looks up, and he sees Eve in verse 23, and he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I want you to try and imagine saying that without emotion, right? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's not possible. Adam sees her and is like, wow, she's amazing. And then God says something really important. He says this, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. This is verse 24. Right? It's here that God actually creates marriage. Right? This is a principle for future generations to follow. Why? Adam and Eve do not have a mother and a father. He forms them, 
Adam has this awesome, whoa, you're amazing response. And then he says, all right, guys, this is why, because you're compatible, you're made for each other. You know, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. He's not saying it for them. He's saying it for us. This is really important for two huge reasons. One, some people these days kind of feel like marriage is more like an institution you know, it's created about 5,000 years ago in ancient Mesopotamia where they had to deal with contract disputes, and they're like, well, let's create marriage then, right? This will solve this particular contextual problem 5,000 years ago. But this isn't what the Scriptures say at all. It says that God invented marriage. And this kind of makes sense if you think about it, because if you go to every people group on the planet, literally every corner of the globe, Every culture and every people, almost every single one, has a version of marriage. It's woven throughout the seven billion people on earth. Marriage is everywhere. Second, one of the things our culture also likes to deconstruct is this idea of gender, right? Yeah, gender is just something humans made up. And in truth, there is some truth to this. Right? When my son Josiah was born, he was given blue stuff. When my daughter Claire was born, she was given pink stuff. That's totally socially and culturally constructed. There's no reason that Josiah couldn't enjoy uh, a pink, pink shirt. Right? That's what our culture has taught us. Right? So we need to be careful about how to put gender in boxes. Right? Even if you look at the Scriptures, right, we have ideas of masculine and feminine. But if you, go to Je- if you go to Judges, Deborah is a warrior. right? And David, right, he plays the harp and he writes poetry. Like, we got to be careful about what boxes we put people into. I also think we need to recognize that throughout history, women have been discriminated against on, in so many ways and in so many places, just in the U.S. Right? In U.S. history, Women have at times not been allowed to vote, not been allowed to own property, not been allowed to attend universities, right? There is a long list of ways that women have been discriminated against in the United States and around the world. I listened to, my mom told me a story this last week. She was working for the bank or a bank, a large bank in the U.S. And she was at their corporate headquarters and she was really smart and dedicated and she was achieving and working her way up. So much so that she got in this environment where it was all men. And at one point, one of the guys pulls her over and he says to her, you know, no woman is going to get a position of power here at the bank. And you just think, well, it's not because she's not smart. It's not because she's not achieving. It's simply because of her gender. And that's wrong. But it's also a part of our history. So it kind of makes sense to me that people would push back on gender. Yeah, we're just people. So with all these kind of caveats on the table, I just want to offer a biblical take, and this is it. God created human beings, male and female. Genesis 1.27. God created man. That just means Adam. Adam. God created Adam in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right? And what this is saying is that our gender is actually created, connected to our imaging of God. Remember, at that moment in creation, God could have created us androgynous, asexual, and interchangeable. But He didn't. Right? When my daughter was born, literally every 
cell of her body was stamped with her sex. It is literally in her DNA. Right? God creates male and female, Adam and Eve, and he forms them, right? he forms marriage. And then he says that when they come together in a sexual union, they become one flesh. Right? That's how Genesis pictures the origin of marriage. But I want to just take a moment also now to tease out, so why get married? Like, what is the point? There's five things I'd like to just identify in this morning. The first is this. God created marriage for community, for friendship, right? God creates Adam and Eve, right? Because Adam is not good on his own. He needs community. Also, men and women are created to image God. And what is God? God is three beings in one. Right, to be made in God's image is to need relationship, to need community. Some of you might know this, but uh, in my early 20s, I considered becoming a Benedictine monk. And one of the vows of a Benedictine is a vow of stability. So what you say is, if I, if I had committed to be a Benedictine, what that meant is that I could never leave the monastery that I was considering joining. That wasn't for me. Uh, but God, you know, late, years later when I was getting married to Jeannie, he reminded me of that season of my life. And he said, Tony, now you are not committing to a place, but you're committing to a person that wherever Jeannie goes, you will go. Because right? marriage is about community. Second, marriage is about partnership. Right? God forms Adam and Eve in the garden, and then he calls them to work together. Right? They're called to partner on a goal that is bigger than themselves in the garden. Right? God creates this garden. Eden means delight. And in that delight, they're supposed to tend the garden. They're given a role and occupation. Right? Eve is said to be Adam's helper. Right? This is not a subordinate word. God is said to be humans, humanity's helper at times. God is called to be a helper. Right? We are meant to partner together in marriage. Jeannie and I have partnered all the time. I was thinking, as we talked this morning, like, what examples should we share? And we were talking back and forth, and there's just so many examples. From when I first started going to school, when we first got married, she was working, and I was in school, and then we flipped, and then I was working, and she was getting her master's, right? Silly things, like when we're in our house, Jeannie is the brains of our decorating operation, and she has these visions for redecorating the room. And these visions recur maybe more frequently than I would, I would think. But that means that then I am the primary muscle behind the brains of the redecorating operation, right? We partner together. And when we started this church plant, right, Jeannie has a passion and a gift for working with kids. So she came and we did this together, right? She led all the kids stuff. I led the adult stuff. We worked together for something that was beyond ourselves, Third, right, marriage is about sex and sexuality. Genesis 2.25 says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Right, God created every part of men and women. I certainly doubt that one day as they're, you know, God is rolling or taking a walk through the garden and he sees Adam and Eve messing around in the grass, he says to them, you know, hey guys, that's not what those were made for. 
Like, I don't think God comes in and he is surprised about human sexuality. Right? God created human beings sexual before they were sinful. Right? Sex is a gift that we're meant to enjoy within the commitment of marriage. And actually, there's all kinds of studies about sex and satisfaction. And study after study says that the best li- sex lives are between monogamous, heterosexual, married couples who have few or no partners before marriage. And the reciprocal is true. The people who report the lowest levels of sexual satisfaction are promiscuous singles with frequent sexual partners. John Mark Comer in his book Loveology asks, when was the last time you saw a movie with a married couple in their 40s having great sex on their 20-year wedding anniversary? Or a single, thin, drop-dead, gorgeous woman waking up the morning after feeling hollow and alone? Right? The answer is never. But the truth is, God wanted humans, right, in marriage to have great sex, right? So, He created a way for men and women to be together in marriage to experience the joy of sexuality. Fourth, right, marriage is about family. Adam and Eve, they have sex, right? And what happens? Cain and Abel are born. Now, this is clearly not a guarantee in marriage. Infertility can be a real and difficult part of life. Right? And this is captured in the Scriptures. There are a number of couples in the Scriptures that want to have children and cannot. What's clear, though, in the biblical narrative is that sex, marriage, and a children or a hope for children are connected. But in our culture, this has shifted a ton. One-fifth of all pregnancies in the United States end in abortion. One out of three kids goes to bed without a dad. The number of children born out of wedlock to women under 30 is more than 50% in most of our country. Now, while the reasons for this are super complex, what is really clear is that for the first time in human history, we have disconnected sex, marriage, and family. For most of human history, it was impossible to even imagine disconnecting those things. Fifth and last, marriage is about spiritual formation. There have been a number of times when I've been at a wedding and the groom has stood up on the altar facing his bride and he says, you know, I promise to make you happy. And every time I hear that, I sort of have this like internal laugh inside. I'm like, dude, that is not a promise you can make. Before I got married, I used to think I was a pretty decent guy. Because in the end, it's really easy to be a decent guy when you live in a bubble with other dudes. Then you get into marriage and you realize, that I, I realize, right, that I'm not quite as kind or as selfless or as good as I thought I was. Recently, I've been painting in our backyard, probably like many of you, I've done more projects around the house than I imagined. We painted a wall, we painted a fence, we painted the ground. Like, we've painted everything. And basically, I've learned a lot about painting because I'm not very good at it. One of the things I've learned is that it actually is quite a pain to get the paint out of a paintbrush. And I get it in there, I get the water on it, and it starts to come out, and I think, oh, I'm making progress. And then it takes more water and more water And I feel like I'm sitting there trying to clean this paintbrush for forever and I can never get all of the color and the paint out of it. And the truth is, marriage kind of functions this way, right? 
Marriage is like the water that constantly reveals the sin and the brokenness in our lives. Right? Marriage exposes what is already inside of us so that we can be formed into Jesus' image. Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Marriage, and he talks about how marriage is about holiness and not happiness. And the problem with assuming that marriage will lead to happiness, right, is that happiness is actually the result of a healthy, healthy marriage. It's not included when you get married. You actually have to work on it. At best, it is a byproduct, not the point. But too often, we approach marriage kind of like uh, Jerry Maguire, right? He's, he's, you know, that you complete me scene. I don't know if I'm dating myself, right? Where he looks at this girl. I, who is it? Who is it? Does anyone remember who it is? Shout it out if you remember. Renee Zellweger. There we go. Thank you, worship team. And uh, he looks at Renee, Tom Cruise does, and he's like, you complete me, you know? And everyone's like crying at that point in the movie. But the point is, like, if you go to the Scriptures... You will never find that as the paradigm for marriage. Actually, it comes entirely from Greek mythology. So Plato said that humans were originally created androgynous. So each human right, had four arms, four legs, two sets of genitalia, male and female, and one head made up of two faces. And these creatures became a threat to the gods. So what did Zeus do? He split them in half, and he said, all right, guys, now I got more worshipers, more people that will come and worship me. And ever since Plato said that we humans are searching for our missing half, because you were separated in the past, and out there somewhere is the one who will complete you. Right? But this isn't the biblical picture of marriage at all. The picture of marriage in the Scriptures is that two broken, sinful people come together there is actually more brokenness and more sin when they come together. And hopefully, through the process of them bumping into each other, getting in fights, working it out, as they're sort of working out all of their stuff in relationship, God forms them into His image. But this isn't easy. I remember really early in our relationship, Jeannie and I were in this pretty entrenched fight. And kind of got to this place where I was like, I need some help. So I talked to a friend of mine. I was like, hey man, can you like pray for me, talk to me? I need some guidance. And as he was praying for me, I actually had this vision, this picture in my head of, of me sort of full on decked out in armor, like sword, helmet, shield, like shin guards, the works. And God said to me, as I was sort of seeing myself in this fully defensive attire, like, Tony, are you willing to set down your sword? And I remember in that moment, I was terrified because I was afraid that if I set down my sword and wasn't defensive with Jeannie, I didn't fight back, that I would get hurt. And I was terrified that if I just tried to listen and love her, that I would just get hurt in the process. You know, I tried it and, you know, I've tried to love Jeannie like Jesus would, but it's not easy. I'm a broken, broken person, right? And marriage reveals that. But I could also say without hesitation that marriage, more than any other thing in my life, 
has transformed me into Jesus' image in ways that I could never have assumed or imagined. All right, so that's like a brief take, Genesis and reasons for marriage. And now I want to sort of do a quick dip into 1 Corinthians 7. Now, the Corinthians have some very specific questions to ask to Paul that shaped by them in their culture. Right, so they live in a culture where the body is a very low value. We talked about this week, this last week, right? And sex, because it's connected to the body, seems like, ah, what about it? Who cares? So they're wondering, they ask Paul, they send this delegation to Paul, and one of their first questions is to Paul, like, Paul, what do you think if we just start kind of like, stop having sex in marriage, right? Because it's kind of like, you know, not very good anyway. We'd be holier if we didn't do it. And what do you think about us dissolving our marriages or just kind of getting divorced? Because I think that would be a, a holier way to live, right? So that's their question to Paul, right? And this is shaped by Stoics and Cynics in the first century, right? Who said, you know, guys, really, you're going to be more wise. You're going to be able to seek wisdom better if you're not married. So they're taking this in and they're wondering, Paul, what do you think? So Paul says to them first, he says this, he clarifies that celibacy, right, isn't going to make them holier. In verse 1, Paul summarizes their belief. They say this. This is kind of like their statement to Paul. It is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Right? So this isn't Paul's opinion. This is their opinion that he's quoting. But clearly, we know this based in Genesis. This isn't true. Right? God never says to Adam and Eve, Hey guys, even though you're together, don't have sex. Never happens once. Right? Because there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with sex in marriage. But this is the thing. Because the Corinthians are creating all these artificial rules about what it means to be holy and how to get there, right? They've stopped now having sex in marriage. And now, as a result, they're visiting prostitutes and they're doing other things. So Paul says to them in verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And then in verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right, so they think they're going to be holier by not having sex in marriage, and then as a result, they're visiting prostitutes, and they're engaging in what Paul calls sexual immorality, pornea, and Paul's like, hey guys, this is ridiculous. Just have sex in marriage to limit the amount that you're going to be visiting prostitutes and doing things you know you shouldn't do. And then two, they ask about separation, and they ask about divorce, right? Because you have to imagine, Paul comes into Corinth. And he shows up, and these people have never heard of Jesus, right? So they're in this context, so they're all, none of them are followers of Jesus. And then every so often, maybe one person in a couple decides, I want to follow Jesus. Now you have one person attending temple and one person, the, some sort of temple, right, in Corinth to worshiping some other god, and then you have someone going to church, and they're like, hey, Paul, uh, can we just like end these marriages? It would be a lot easier, and then you have others of them that are kind of like maybe having conflict and they're just thinking, man, this would be a lot easier to follow Jesus if I was just on my own. And Paul says this, hey guys, it's not a good idea. Don't do it. 
Right? Marriage was not just a commitment you made for a season of your life. Right? Remember, you are one flesh. Right? This is true whether they are both Christians or not. Remember, marriage is about spiritual formation, and that shapes Paul's understanding in 1 Corinthians 7. His counsel to them is, remain as you are. Ideally, he says in verse 16, if you are practicing the way of Jesus, your love will shine through and your spouse might even come to believe the truth of your convictions through your love. Change happens in marriage. Now, more generally, if we go to sort of a larger scope on the New Testament, there's a lot to say about divorce. One day Jesus is asked, he's going about ministry, he's asked by some Pharisees, Jesus, what do you think about divorce? All right, just like today, this is not an easy question or an easy answer. There's two primary schools in the first century. One school is Shammai, and Shammai is like, hey, you guys, you cannot get divorced for anything other than infidelity. And then you have this guy named Hillel, and Hillel is kind of uh, way more open-handed. Hillel says this, this is a quote, if she burns the toast, divorce her. It's like, all right, Hillel, like a bit much, but whatever. He says, for any and every reason, get divorced. And this is what Jesus says. This is chapter 19. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, right? So he's echoing back to Genesis, the story we were talking about earlier. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Right? So the Pharisees are coming and they're saying, hey, what about divorce? And Jesus is saying, hey guys, what is God's dream for marriage? Let's focus on God's dream for marriage. Let's not focus on all the ways we can get out of it. I remember 13 years ago, Jeannie and I were getting married. We were at our wedding. We were at a church in Santa Cruz and we were saying our vows to one another. And at the end of Jeannie's vows, she says, right in front of everyone there, like, no divorce. And literally, you could have heard a pin drop in that environment. Because it's so contrary to our culture. But the thing is, you know, Jeannie and I had no idea what we were getting into when we got married. No one does. Almost everyone at some point in their marriage, if they're married long enough, will come to a day when they wonder, did I make a mistake? Because marriage is hard. It is hard to love a spouse as Jesus would love him or her. But I think God's dream for marriage is that marriage would witness to the love that God has. Right? That as God loves us in our brokenness, we would love our spouse in our brokenness in such a way that we would witness to the profound commitment of love of God in the world. Right, so they have these questions about sex in marriage, dissolving marriage, and Paul's like, hey guys, let's, let's, let's remember why we got married. Remember, sex isn't all bad. Marriage is good. Let's try and seek Jesus together in marriage. All right, but what about us? Right, as we try and sort of shift this to everyday life, as we try and apply God's word to us, right, in a congregation that has singles and marrieds and the truth is, right, like just as Paul read this 
or Paul's letter was read in Corinth, so we're saying it today in a mixed group of singles and marrieds. I guess to the singles, I would say this. Like, I just want to recognize, one, that singleness is super diverse, right? You have singles that are uh, never been married. You have singles that have been divorced. You have singles that are widows. You have singles that are 19. You have singles that are 45. You have singles that are 80. Right? There's a spectrum there. And I guess I just ask you, as you listen to this talk on marriage, what do you sense God's saying to you? Do you sense a longing to be married? Do you sense a just profound gratefulness to be single? Somewhere in between? I'm just inviting you. Have a conversation with Jesus about that. Maybe it's a time of sadness. Maybe it's a time of celebration. How would you respond to Jesus from a posture of singleness? And right, because we're leading this in a mixed environment, I guess I would just ask you, like, if you're wanting to get married, what story are you believing about marriage? That if you just get married, you'll be completed by this other person? Or are you adopting a more biblical perspective on marriage that has multiple points, right, of community and partnership and sexuality and family and formation? What narrative are you leaning into or believing? Two, if you're divorced and still single, are you in a process of healing? Are you in a process of dealing with ever, to whatever led to that divorce? Are you processing that out? Jesus wants to form us into his image, and divorce is hard. What does it look like for you to grow and heal on the other side of being divorced and now being single? And then three, if you're just in a place you feel like God has called you to be single, maybe you're a widow, are you open to interceding on behalf of all the married couples in this church? Because the truth is, like, marriage is not that easy, and we want to image God in the world through our marriages. Would you be willing to intercede on our behalf? Because the truth is, over the last three months, four months of being in COVID, I have done more marriage counseling than the two and a half or three years combined and since we started this church plant. Because something in this season is really exposing something in marriages. And we could use as much prayer as we can get. And if you're married, I guess I just have a few kind of questions. Like one is, I guess, you know, going back to the paintbrush analogy, what is the, the water of marriage revealing about your patterns of sinfulness and brokenness? What do you need to sort of just say to your spouse or to God? What do you need to own and repent and confess of? Because the water of marriage reveals what is inside of us. Two, I would just wonder, like, what is God's dream for your marriage? Do you know? I would encourage you, maybe take some time this week and just think through, like, right, community, partnership, sexuality, family, formation. As you think about those aspects of why we get married, what is God's dream for your marriage? Do you know? What would God's word be to you? 
what would it look like for you to sort of accept God's dream rather than say, hey, I just want to do it this way? What is God's dream for you? Right, given that COVID has been sort of a tricky season, we're actually going to do a seminar next Sunday called Marriage Matters, a COVID tune-up. Right, it's from 2 to 4. Uh, it's going to be outside. We're going to try and create a space where we can just kind of lean into what does God have to say here and how can we work together to grow? It's going to be hosted by Terry and Andy Belici. They've been married, I think, 53 years. They've been doing marriage coaching and counseling and seminars for a long time. They are incredible. They have a profound story. I want to encourage you, if you are married and you'd like a tune-up, go check it out. It's meant to be a way into recognizing, man, that COVID has been a hard season for many. And even if it hasn't, like, we can all use a tune-up. Encourage you, sign up, check it out. With that said, I want to invite the worship team back up. Um, adjust this. Man, I keep moving this thing over, creating a hazard up here. I just want to pray for us as we lean into worship. God, on this day and in this place, we just lay our lives down before you. And we say, God, please speak to us. Speak to us in our brokenness. Speak to us in our hopes. Speak to us in our dreams. God, wherever, whatever we bring to the table, God, we ask that you would show up. God, for those who are single, God, we pray that you would give them a word, a vision, God, for your call upon their lives. And as we lean into it next week, singleness next week, God, I pray that you would be speaking to all the single people in this next week, giving them a clarity, God, of your vision for them. And God, this morning, to all those who are married, God, I pray that you would be revealing, God, your heart, your desire, your hopes for those who are married in this church. And God, for those who maybe identify as parts of the LGBTQ community, those who maybe are kind of wondering what their place is, God, I pray that you would give them a space in this body where they feel safe to journey and seek your face. God, we all come before you. We lay all of our ideas at your feet and we ask that you would come, that you would speak. And God, for the wounded among us, single, married, God, we pray that you would come and bring your healing. Jesus, as singles, as marrieds, God, many of us have been just hurt in relationship and outside of it. We've been hurt by feeling like we don't feel like we're, we're going to find a spouse or we feel like we've found a spouse and we're wondering if it's the right person. Or maybe we've been hurt because the church has said, hey, you don't fit into our version of sexuality, so get out. And God, we just pray for healing. God, we pray that this would be a safe place to heal and journey and seek your face. God, whatever we bring into the room, whatever perspectives we carry, God, wherever we come from, that we would be able to find you. Because God, you are our rock. You are our cornerstone. Come, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, that we might know you and be transformed by you.